Humanizing History is a show about people in history that have had an impact on our world. We will be exploring what made them important, but our main focus will be who that person was outside of well-known records. We will be diving deep into who these people were, what they hated, who they loved, and other less known information about their lives. In order to show the world that no one is perfect, we are all human and make mistakes. But that doesn't mean that we can't be great and have a profound impact on tomorrow. This is Humanizing History. This is Nick Downey. And I'm Cliff Boone. Welcome back. Well, Cliff, how you doing? You know, I'm okay. We had the election today, so we're still waiting results for that. So this is a, a new thing for our country now that apparently we got to wait a week to find out who our president's going to be. So crazy. So today is what? The fourth, right? Yes, so we sir. had the election yesterday. Yes, we are recording early. Yeah, we are recording a little bit early. I was listening to ABC News today, and with... Was it Wisconsin? So Wisconsin has a less than 1% gap between the two. Oh, wow. It's about a 0.5% gap, and they're about 99% counted. So legally, Trump, who is losing at this point in Wisconsin, can ask for a recount. Well, first they have to certify all the votes before they can do a recount. If they are granted a recount... They don't do recounts until the first or second week of December. Yeah. And typically when they do a recount, the difference is hundreds, not tens of thousands like he's hoping for. Right. So the difference may be, oh yeah, there were 200 extra votes for you, mm-hmm. which a drop in the bucket, you know. But this one, it sounds like it's, it's I mean, it's a, only a few thousand. Really? Yeah. It's it's extremely close. And I don't know, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. It's, it's maybe a while before we know what is going to be the final result for for this election and either way you know i i don't know if i'm happy either way it's kind of uh, you know one of those elections but i have my uh, personal opinion on who i want to win i'm going to keep that quiet but i think people may know who listen to this podcast well and we all have our opinions yeah you know just like buttholes, we all have them. They all stink yes that is that is 100% true but i am glad to see how many people are voting I think that's a positive thing. Yeah, record turnouts. Yeah. And that's your right as an American. Please go exercise your right. 100%. It might not be the right the right vote, but I'm just kidding. No, yeah. it's 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 important to be have your voice heard and your vote is is one way to do that. Absolutely. And we are not a political podcast, so we're not going to tell you who to vote for, what to vote for. We're going to try and keep it as neutral as we can. Uh, you know, we can't keep 100% of what we think out of our podcast. Mm-hmm. This is something creative that we do. And, yeah. you know, it it's going to flow through us. Right. So, but we do, you know, try to hesitate from just saying, go vote for this person, go right. vote for that person. And that's actually something that's changed in my personal life. I don't tell people to vote for any person. I will tell them my views, but I tell them, hey, go vote. And, and that's just something that I've adopted probably over the last five, six years because it I'm going to love that person or care for that person regardless of what they believe. Absolutely. You go vote different from me. You're still a human being. Unless, you know, I'm going to hate you because you did something bad, not because of who you voted for. So, Absolutely. But speaking of people that I hate, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, no, today, it's, it's kind of interesting who we're talking about today. It doesn't really have to do anything directly with the American or the United States election, but... You actually see this this man's face quite a bit 
in America, which is really interesting because he kind of stands for what in the past America has been against. And so today we're going to talk about the notorious, famous, infamous, however you view him, Che Guevara. Ooh, dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. Okay. And so before before we go into who he was and what he was all about, I kind of want to talk about why I chose him. Didn't have to do anything with the election, but I was kind of researching and trying to figure out who I wanted to, to do the podcast on. And you had originally wanted to do Fidel Castro yeah, a so while back. A few weeks ago when I ended up doing Audie Murphy, mm-hmm. the dictator I was going to cover was Fidel Castro. And my issue is, once all was said and done and my pages were written up, the good and the bad were at such a discrimination that it's hard to say he did anything well. He did anything decent. Because, yeah, he was the leader of his country for, what, 60 years or something crazy? A long time. But he was a dictator. His people suffered under him. And Mm -hmm. I couldn't find really any positives other than extremely left-leaning people saying, oh, well, he was a visionary and he freed his country. Right. Other than that, I couldn't find any positives. Right. So I chose not to cover him. Right. But he was great friends with Che Guevara. He was great friends with Che. And with that relationship that they had, for some reason the conversations that you and I had kind of just got me into that mindset of this is the type of person I want to look for. And it just reminded me of back when I was a freshman in college. So I went to Northern Arizona University up in Flagstaff. And one thing that I saw for the very first time was pictures of Shea. Posters, t-shirts, it was everywhere. And just being a white, being from a white conservative neighborhood, family, I was never exposed to Shea. Were you, when were you, when was the first time you ever learned about Shea? Uh, it was middle school. We're, okay, so yeah. you actually learned about it in school. But it was one of those things that was super, super short when we were covering like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay. So they were focusing on one thing. Right. But leading up to that was the story. Right. So, oh, you know, it was about Castro mainly. Oh, he left Cuba and that's where he ran into this person who came and helped him here and the whole Bay of Pigs and everything. So I didn't really learn about him. Right, and, and I felt like I never learned about Shea. Maybe it was just that little snippet in history class that I didn't pay attention to because I was more focused on Castro. But I got exposed to Shea, or at least the image of Shea, when I was about 17, 18, 19 years old, my, my freshman and sophomore year of college. And it was one of those things that I was walking around and, and seeing this and going, who in the world is this? To be honest with you, when I saw it at first, I thought it was an album cover. Yeah, I was like, oh, this must be, you know, some sort of album cover of a band I've never heard of or, you know, something I was thinking along the lines of, is this something like a Rage Against the Machine type of band? And this is their cover. I can see them actually doing a cover like that. <laughs> oh, I could too. And, and I'm pretty sure that Rage Against the Machine has used his imagery either at concerts or in music videos and stuff like that. Now, I love Rage Against the Machine. Oh, I, know I they, do too. They, they hold a lot of values that I don't, but man. Do they make good music? Oh, yeah. How long? Not long. Because what you reap is what you sow. <laughs> I love Rage. Oh, yeah. I would love to see Rage. But do you know how much their tickets are to their new concert? No. The least expensive one is $125. It's like going to see Garth Brooks. That's expensive. But we're talking about a band whose whole thing is stick it to the man. Yeah. But you're charging... You are the man now. But So that's 
everybody, everyone that says they hate capitalism, like Michael Moore, for example, mm -hmm. I hate capitalism. He's making millions and millions of dollars using it. Right. And he but then he expects you to not make any money. Right. Because capitalism's bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. But anyway, going back to it, like I said, I thought it was a, a, an album cover. And as we'll learn today, his photo now is kind of used everywhere. It's it's turned into this symbol of like stick it to the man, revolution, uh, rebellion against oppression, and just and social equality. So they it's just kind of turned into this almost like a Christ-like figure to, to some people. So I really want to know like is this dude actually who people think he is? Should we be looking up to him? Are not enough people idolizing him? Or are the people that are idolizing him not understanding who he is? Because from the, the bits and pieces that I knew before doing research, I never thought this would be somebody that would stand in America or you know that people in America would support. But clearly, there are droves of people that look up to this guy. So I really wanted to get down to it and see, okay, I want to I want to understand this man better. I want to understand his views better. And if they are something I support, maybe I will have a Shea poster in my in my room or whatever it may be. We'll learn later on what my true views are. But that's that's where I came from on this. Is it too early to buy your kid a Shea Guevara onesie? You know what? Maybe I should. <laughs> He's acting, recently he's been acting like a rebel. Dear. <laughs> so, I feel like he's hitting this tantrum phase a little early. And they say the earlier that you, your kid has a tantrum phase, at least what me and my wife are reading, it's actually better. They're learning their personality younger. And so, I don't know. It's Our terrible twos turned into terrible three years. Hey, so What I'm hoping is, is that he has these tantrums before he can talk. And then it's just blah, 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 instead of, ma'am, dad. But anyway, okay, <laughs> we totally digress there. So that's where I'm coming from with this episode. Not necessarily saying that this person right off the bat has done anything positive, but I wanted to see if he was worth the praise that he gets. Okay, cool. Okay? So this is going to be a little bit different episode than maybe we've done in the past. But first, let's just dive into who he is, because a lot of people out there Probably don't know who he is, just know his face or his picture. On June 14, 1928, Ernest Guevara de la Serna was born in Rosario, Argentina to an upper middle class family. Really? Yes. Okay. That's that shocking. surprised me. <laughs> and we'll talk about it later, but it's just what. <laughs> Sorry, you said Ernest. And now all I picture is just the worst movie. Ernest goes to Cuba, and it's him going there to murder people instead of Ernest going to the... Do you know the movies? I'm yes, talking? I know. Okay. The, the redneck yeah. guy, Ernest goes to Hollywood, or Ernest does Halloween, or whatever. Ernest goes everywhere. My dad had 50 movies when I was a kid of him. And they're so stupid. They're I don't know awful. how they made so many of them. But anyway. Ernest goes to Cuba. I was surprised to learn right off the bat. Upper middle class family. Yeah, I'm shocked by that. Usually people that grow up upper middle class don't feel like they have something to rebel against. Right. There's nothing to rebel against. You have everything. Or not everything, but... Yeah, you don't want for much. Right, you're, exactly. You're not in the street begging for change because you don't have food. Right. And, and learning about Shay, that's how I felt. I felt he had a good upbringing. 
or he was in, in a well-to-do area, didn't really have much to worry about. So right off the bat, I was a little bit surprised that he ended up being who he was. Uh, many, you know, like as we said, many people would think that being from middle class family, he would have more conservative views. However, his family was actually a little bit different. It is believed that he actually learned his left-leaning politics from his family as well as his friends at a young age, which I, like you said, kind of weird. Thought he would be more conservative just because of the, of the rich, not necessarily rich, but well-to-do background that he comes from. So even though he did have what we would consider more of a upper middle class background, he actually started very at a very young age being a left activist in political circles. Uh, as a teenager, he would actually be affiliated with a group that was against the then Argentinian president, Juan Perón, who was very much known for his conservative views and bit of a militaristic style. Okay. Although he was politically active in high school, his views were not as convicting or strong as we know them today. Part of that being, I think, it, not, well, not his peer pressure, but the people he was around, I think he kind of followed them to an extent. He did have his own feelings, but he really would become Shay later on in life, or the, the ideas and the philosophies that he eventually would stand for weren't that strong at this point. So, but did he become the typical college activist at a young age? Yes. Okay. Yes. And we'll talk about that. And and he, you do see that big change happen when he's in college. So, Shay was actually extremely intelligent as well. He actually graduated high school with honors. And shortly after, he studied at the University of Buenos Aires and would eventually graduate with a degree in medicine. Really? Yeah. So was that like an eight-year degree or something? It's a pretty long degree. I don't know exactly how many years, but he was in school for quite a while. Did he ever use it? Very, very briefly. We'll discuss kind of the directions he could have gone. So he had a friend that we'll talk about that went down the medical route. Shay went down the other route just because of his ideology and, and his feelings behind change and what would make effective effective change. Okay. But I just thought it was weird. It was like whenever I think of somebody who rebels, especially in kind of these third world or second world countries, you think of more of the, like we've kind of said, poor people, maybe not as... They're, they're held down. They haven't been given the same opportunities that somebody right. like he has. And not necessarily that they're not smart, but they may not have the formal education sure. that that you and I have. Well, they miss that opportunity. Right. A but, lot of countries, America's very different here mm -hmm. because just about anybody can go to school. Right. If you want debt the rest of your life. But mm -hmm. in a lot of other countries, you don't have that. If you grow up poor, you're poor. Mm -hmm. That's just the way you're going to stay. Right. It's your class. It's your, your state, you know, your level in life. And you don't get past that in a lot of countries. And so it's just interesting that somebody who had it, you know, you could say had it all, went and did the rebellion that you wouldn't expect from somebody in his standing. But anyway, at the time that he earned his degree, his goal in life was to provide medical assistance to those who were needy and could not afford medical care. So that kind of lines up more with who we see Shay as. He wanted to help the less fortunate. And that's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's a very... 
altruistic kind of way to be. Of course. You want to make sure that everybody has that opportunity or the accessibility to, to healthcare. The question to me was, why, why is he famous? Okay, great, he was a good student, he came from an upper middle class family, but what does that really mean? How did he become this person that we see plastered everywhere? During his time in medical school, Shea took a nine month break during which he traveled all throughout South America. We will actually dive further into this famous bike trip later on in today's podcast. But while he was traveling, his eyes were open to the massive inequality of the upper and lower classes throughout South America. Which is interesting. I still think, when I think of South America, I still think there is giant gaps in any social equality. So, I don't know a ton about this. Yeah. So I'm looking at from the outside. Right. If you are in a South American country, please let us know. Right. But from what I've seen, again, from my you know 10,000 foot elevation view, is there is mass poverty, mm-hmm. shadowed by huge mansions, you know, on right. the hill. They're just overlooking, what's the country I'm thinking about? It's got uh, the Statue of Christ. Brazil. You're thinking of the favelas in uh, Rio. Yeah, where you see on the mountain there's these huge mansions. And you look down and there's just ghettos everywhere. And the houses are so tiny and they're stacked on top of each other. And they're built with whatever they can find. Right. So they're built with tin or they're built with mud or anything. Mm -hmm. And it's just the, the distance between super poor and super wealthy is huge. There is no middle class. There really is not. And and I had the same experience when I went to Jamaica. So I went to Jamaica for my honeymoon and I'm paying thousands of dollars to be here. Super bougie, you know, awesome resort, all the amenities, as much food and drink as I could guzzle down. Yet I take three feet off of the resort and we're talking barbed wire houses and sorry, like not barbed wire, but uh, barred up windows. Not barred up windows. What's the what's the the rods that you fortify a house with? When uh, rebar. There we go. Not rebar. Rebar is what you use to build a house. Yes, that stuff. You so, okay? Basically, you would have unfinished houses with people living in them. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and we're talking like right outside. But then you would go two streets down. Giant mansions. Like, we saw a mansion that Mick Jagger owned. There was another mansion that Usain Bolt owned. And they'd be on these hills looking down on mass poverty. Yeah. So, I'm ta- we're talking 50, 60, 70 years ago, Shay's experiencing the same thing that we still see today. So, I can kind of see where he was coming from when it came to seeing that inequality... This trip is where he solidified that leftist political standing. So he was kind of into it as a kid, but this is where he was like, yep. And would eventually become an advocate for Marxism and socialism. His passion became so strong that his goal was to liberate all of South America. He would begin to travel throughout South America and in 1953, while in Guatemala, he witnessed the overthrow of their government. This was an effort to remove the left-standing government, and it was actually backed by the CIA. What? I'm shocked. The CIA? Interfering with global affairs? So, he saw this overthrowing of the Guatemalan government, and saw that it was an imperialist, capitalist-backed effort. And so, he was infuriated, and that was kind of where he was like, I draw the line here. 
I am now going to make this life, my life my life goal. I, I, a part of me understands. Yeah. You see something that's wrong and you're standing up for it. That's great. That's amazing. Does power kind of get in and poison? I think so. And I think we'll see that. And that's why while researching Shay, I was back and forth on the guy. Because I understood where his thoughts were coming from. I can understand the seeds that were planted throughout his life of why he would want radical change. But did he do it in the way that he should have? Well, and wanting radical change is one thing. But once it changes, what did he put in place? Right. Is it positive? Is it better than what was there before? Right. Change for the sake of change is not necessarily a good thing. That's just change. That's just a constant in life. Right. But was it for the better? Right. And we'll we'll dive into that a little bit later. I don't want to dive into that. <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> Anyways, two years after he witnessed this activity in Guatemala, he would uh, move and be living in Mexico with his wife, where he met two Cubans that would eventually change his life. Can you guess who those uh, two Cubans were? I know one of them was Fidel Castro. Yes. And I think the other one was his brother, wasn't it? Yep. Fidel's so, brother. Who he met was uh, Fidel and Raul Castro. That's what it was, Raul. Yeah. Yep. Ca- the Castros and a small band of armed forces were conspiring to overthrow the conservative government of Cuba. And Shea saw this as his opportunity to be part of a revolution that could bring equality and prosperity to all of South America. So he joined the Castro brothers. So basically he's like, this is my foot into the door. These guys have the a similar idea of what I want to do. And they have the means of doing it. So this is going to be my way in. So they began their revolution on December 2nd, 1956. But during the first assault, Shea was only one of a very few number of survivors Mm -hmm. um, from that first initial assault. However, over the next few years, he would serve as the main advisor to Fidel and be the leader of their guerrilla forces, and they eventually overthrew the Cuban government and established their own regime in January of 1959. So very quickly it went from, okay, we just squashed this small rebellion, to three years later, they were successful. It's so hard for me to think of rebellion because we live in the United States and our government is so big, our military is so powerful, it's kind of hard for me to, to, to grasp that a small group of guerrilla forces can overthrow a government. Does that ever, is that ever hard for you to think? Not about? really, because if you just look at history, I mean, look at what America did just to be formed. We use guerrilla tactics against the world's mightiest military. Correct, but we, they were also thousands of miles from their, from their home. They weren't, though, because a lot of them were here in America. As, like, there were governors that were here that were, you know, English governors, and they had their troops here. There, it wasn't just, oh, hey, you know, there's trouble in the colony, send 50 boats over there. True. There were troops here already. Okay, so I can understand it, that. It, there was both. But again, comparatively, the colonies to the massive might of the, you know, British Empire is nothing. Thankfully, with the help of the French, we were able to take them down. Right. It, it helps. But then again... These in the fifties, when they're fighting Cuba, there's no military. There's no well, there's military, but there's no jets. 
you know, there's very little armored divisions. Right. So it's not like they're fighting a military. They're fighting other guys with very similar weapons. Right, right. These are also people they know. So how many of them are like, oh, hey, uh, I grew up next door to Raul. I'm not going to be shooting him. Hey, buddy, you know, don't shoot me. I give up. Right. Where now, you know, if you mess around in the United States, there's a jet. Woo! Right. You're, you're no more. It doesn't even... It may not even be piloted by anybody. Yeah. It's it's just insane. It's, it's hard... Just for me personally, just because of the environment I grew up grew up in and, and currently living in it, it's kind of hard to think of some sort of revolution like this. But yeah, within three years, they had control of Cuba. And during his time in Cuba, he held many high positions. He started as the leader in charge of the La Cabana prison, which we'll learn quite a bit about that prison. Sounds like a nice tourist place. <laughs> the, uh, what is it, the... Loco, now why am I thinking, what's the cabana? Coca cabana? Coca cabana. <laughs> Complete opposite of the Coca cabana. <laughs> uh, later he became the president of the National Bank and the Minister of Industry, which is really interesting because he had zero financial background and they're like, here, run the banks yeah. because you're Fidel Castro's right-hand man. And as we'll learn, the, uh, the economy in Cuba did not do very well. Wait, are you trying to tell me the reason there's still 1960s Chevys there and nothing newer <laughs> is because the economy was bad? <laughs> because it was ran by somebody who had no financial backing or background? Yeah, so he held a lot of you know different positions while he was in Cuba. Che was one of the individuals credited for transforming Cuba into a communist state. And as mentioned before, Shea was extremely passionate in sharing his views with the world. Due to this, he would eventually become an ambassador for Cuba to foster relations with countries all around the world. He played a key part in the alliance between the Soviets and Cuba. And he was also an integral part in the Bay of Pigs invasion as well as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Shea would also represent Cuba in the United Nations. And at one point in 1964, he gave a speech at the UN in which he condemned U.S. foreign policy and the apartheid in South Africa. Really? Yeah. Huh. Okay. I had no idea he had any ties over there. Mm -hmm. Now, I do know that Castro had ties over in Africa because after Cuba was, quote, unquote, liberated, um, he started sending troops over there. But I never made the connection that he probably helped send Che over there. Mm-hmm. So what's, he he actually did send Shea over to the Congo. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, and we'll actually talk about it briefly right here. So typically the death of a historical figure is where you know we kind of end their legacy. But for Shea, this seems to be kind of the beginning of his legacy. Like he was known, but his death kind of propelled him to this new status in the, the view of the world. In 1965, the economy of Cuba was in complete ruin at this point. <gasps> I know, right? Shocker. <laughs> Guevara resigned his duties and decided to take his ideals to other countries throughout the world. First, he would move overseas to Africa and train guerrilla troops in the Congo and try to support a revolution. However, it was a complete failure and he returned to Cuba just one year later. After his brief return to Cuba, he set off again, this time to Bolivia. He brought a small rebel force and again incited another revolution. This time, however, he was captured by the Bolivian army and ordered to be killed on October 9th, 1967. His death is what captured the attention of people everywhere. 
Many view him as a martyr for the socialist cause. Some believe that his cause was just and his death was a murder by a powerful uh, government to just squash a rebellion. And to kind of end this movement of those weak and underprivileged people within Bolivia. Yeah, I know. I get it. I, <laughs> you guys can see the look on, on Cliff's face right now. You'd, you'd uh, be laughing. I don't think we would be seeing the man on the shirts and the posters that we see today if it wasn't for his death. And the reason I say that is, what do you think of when you think of Castro? What do most people think of when they think of Castro? A vicious murderer. Correct. And I think, I think other than the very niche group of people that see Castro as a liberator, I think most of us think of Castro as a horrible human being. I think you can ask over 200,000 people that left Cuba when they were allowed to right. to come to America would agree with us. Right. Well, for some reason, Shea is not viewed that way. Shea has a lot bigger following. A huge, passionate following. And I think part of that is because he didn't die of old age. He died because of his cause. So that's where I feel like he's, because of his death, he elevated to that new status. So I think you're probably right there. I think that if he went on to die an old man, that his legacy would have died there too. Right. Everybody, not everybody, but most people were happy when Castro finally died. A lot of people were. Yeah. There were... So I know um, there's a huge Cuban um, population population in Florida, mm-hmm. and they threw parties. Yeah. Now, these people had been in America for, for decades. Mm-hmm. A lot of these people weren't even first-year Americans anymore. They were second-generation Americans, third-generation Americans, and they were still throwing parties right. because they knew what this man did to their country, mm-hmm. to their people, to their families. And they probably st- a lot of them probably still had families in Cuba. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So what I want to talk about now is kind of Shea and pop culture. Okay. So he has become this icon. And the iconic photo that we know of Shea today was actually taken by a former fashion photographer named Alberto Diaz Gutierrez, who is also known as Corda. I'll call him Corda throughout this because it's just a lot easier. Um, Today, people can see all over the world of popular culture this image. It was used at the student barricades of Paris in 1968. In the early 2000s, Madonna used it as the template of her American Life album cover. So it's not actually him, but it's her kind of dressed and stylized like in his photo. image. In yeah. his image, correct. It's on shirts and posters around the globe. You can go to any dorm room or dorm in America, not necessarily every room, but you're going to see posters in colleges all across the U.S., and you see flags of it. It's also in all sorts of anti-establishment rallies and human rights events, things like pride parades, because they're sticking it to the man. They want to, they want to use his image as a representation of fighting this imperial establishment and conservative views and the powers that be. And... That's why this is used all across the world. And Corda's photo has, like I said, become a symbol of anti-capitalism as well as peaceful social activism. So was he just all about peaceful social activism? Of course. Don't you know that? He peacefully took over Cuba. Well, I figured, yeah. Martin Luther King and him had a whole lot in common, I assume. (laughs) Arm in arm, right? 
Which is interesting since this is the same man that went around teaching others to use hatred as a tool for the new man, quote unquote, to wipe exploitation from the planet. So he's now seen as this peaceful individual, but he literally said, use your hate to wipe out those that exploit you. Does that make sense? Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. The other ironic thing about the popularity of this photo is the reason that it is popular today is because after Shay's death, it was used by a wealthy Italian businessman, and I'm going to butcher this name, Gian Giacomo Fertellinelli, to sell millions of copies and make money off of those that were purchased. I love this more than anything. This is the (laughs) definition of irony. Right. A socialist being used by a capitalist to make more money. And that's that's really why his photo is so popular is because companies are just mass producing it and making money off of it. So I love this. Everybody that's buying this shirt that's sticking it to the man. You just spent $20 on a shirt that helped getting somebody richer. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And it kind of, like you said, it, it defies his anti-capitalist stance that, that Shea held. And also the photographer, Corda, held the same belief as well. So Wait, belief of who? Capitalist or socialist? Socialist. Okay, okay. So Corda didn't even make money off of, of this at the beginning. He gave the photo <laughs> to Fratelli. It was only later in his life that Corda made any money off of it. So he's like, yeah, let's spread the socialist, the socialist view. And this Italian guy just took it and ran with it and made <laughs> bank on it. No, no joke. So it's it's just interesting how anti-capitalist Shay is now a capitalist figure. Not that he's a capitalist figure, but he's helping capitalists. Well, his image is being used to reinforce capitalism. Right, one hundred percent. So, and granted, he's dead. He has no say in it anymore. Right, but you would think that people would figure that out and stop buying his crap. I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous that people still continue to to fund this. But I feel like I'm going a little too far into my own views before diving more into to Shay. But it's just interesting how this individual has kind of just become this icon for anti-capitalism, anti this, anti that. But is He's being used now to, again, reinforce it. Right. Bolster it. It's, it's just it's an interesting spot. But we could digress a little bit. And I, I want to go into how he developed his views. And this is probably his redeeming qualities. I know we try to look at people that have redeeming qualities. And in this layered personality of his, at the very core, I believe that he did mean to do well. And we'll talk about why and how he, you know, how he gained his views. So yeah, let's let's hop into it. So the bike trip. So I told you earlier about this bike trip that we that he had while he was in college that kind of set his views and kind of pushed him to to become what he was. So at the age of 23, Shea and his friend Alberto Granado left. Cordoba, Argentina on a South American motorcycle adventure in December 1951. Uh, During this trip, Guevara would travel throughout the continent and see things that would change his life and solidify his socialist point of view. 
the trip actually didn't start very well for Shane. I'm surprised that he actually went on with it. Uh, so he suffered from chronic asthma his entire life. Really? Yes. Okay. And he was very susceptible to illness. So and Did he exercise like like Teddy Roosevelt did? Uh, no, I no. don't think he did. Uh, <laughs> because he would get sick quite often. And you saw it later on in life as well. But due to this constant exposure on his on the bike, he actually caught the flu at the very beginning, and it wasn't it was not pretty. He was pretty sick. Also during this trip, he actually received a, a letter from his girlfriend that stated she wanted to end the relationship. On top of that, their motorcycle broke down and was unable to be fixed in Chile. The rest of the trip, the two had to hitchhike, walk, ride horses, and be stowaways on ships. Wow. Yeah. So what was so wrong with the bike that it couldn't be fixed? <laughs> I don't know. It just said it broke. Finally, just broke down, and they, it, it was unfixable. Just ran out of gas. They didn't know how to put gas in it. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't a very good trip from the beginning, or at the beginning. But one of the first places that the two friends visited that incited his hate towards capitalism was a copper mine in, forgive me when I say this, Chuquica Mata, Chile. Uh, these mines were owned by an American multinational company. During their visit, Guevara and Granado witnessed the mine workers being exploited. And Shea wrote in his diary, The only thing that matters is the enthusiasm with which these workers set ruining their health in search for a meager few crumbs that barely provide their substance. The biggest effort Chile should make is to shake this uncomfortable Yankee friend from its back, a task that for the moment at least is Herculean. <laughs> so he saw these individuals just being treated like crap. So, hey, I can mining's hard work. It really is. And I can totally see someone exploiting people like that. It's bad. We've all seen Blood Diamond. I'm sure it's the same thing, but in a copper, copper mine. Right. And unfortunately, large corporations that are looking to make a buck are going to exploit individuals that will work for very little. Especially in a country that doesn't have the same kind of uh, employee protection laws. Or, like yeah, or regulations do. and things like that. Yeah. Is there a Chilean OSHA? Uh, at this time, time, no. So then, yeah, I could totally see them being taken advantage of. Of course. And guess what? We still see it today. American companies still exploit cheap labor outside of the U.S. But whose fault is that? That's American politicians' faults for making things so expensive here. Right. But it's also companies trying to make a buck, too. I, I get it. Companies need to make money. Right. But at the same time, if... There wasn't so much tax right. on companies here. Americans would still be getting put to work. Right. We wouldn't be outsourcing as much. We wouldn't be seeing the problems that we have. And America wouldn't be viewed as that totalitarian world power that exploits anyone anywhere that they can. Right. No, I, I think. You know, and, and, and I, I see where your point of view is coming from. And I, I believe it to an extent. I think that... You're right, things are too expensive here, so people have to make more money, so it's it's not cost-effective to produce things here. And so we're just shipping things off to China and other countries that will do it, and they don't care. Or their governments don't care. So their people get thrown under the bus or, you know, get kind of screwed. And that's what he's seeing in this. Uh, also, while in Peru, the travelers crossed paths with numerous native and indigenous people to the area. 
Shea firsthand saw how poor and in poverty these people were. He even felt as if they were treated as lesser beings. In his diary, Shea wrote, These people who watch us walk through the streets of the town are a defeated race. Their stares are tame, almost fearful, and completely indifferent to the outside world. Some give the impression they go on living only because it's a habit that they cannot shake. So this is in a totally different country than when they were the mining Correct. operation. So we went so what from was Chile so wrong, to Peru. What was so wrong in Peru? They were just indigenous people living their lives. Well, what it was is he saw how the upper class treated these individuals. Gotcha. Not giving them any opportunity, treating them as if they were you know, sub-human. second class, subhuman. And it was like, he, he's literally saying... It's probably better for them to just be dead than actually have to live through this. Oh, wow, okay. Which is crazy. I wonder if they feel the same way. You don't. And unfortunately, we'll I never know. But. Yeah, we'll never know. But the one thing that I do like about the facts that we're gathering from Shay, he wrote everything down. This guy had diaries his entire life. So we are able to see the things that he believed firsthand and from, from his, I don't want to say his mouth, but from his hand. He showed it and wrote it down. Guevara and Granado also spent a couple weeks in a leper colony in eastern Peru. During their time, they assisted in the treatment of these individuals. This was actually a positive experience in Shea's travels as he was able to witness the humane treatment of these people with leprosy. And did he help out? Because yes. he had the medical. Okay. Yeah. So they actually did help treat these Fantastic. individuals. And honestly, that is what Christ wants you to do. Of course. And that's any anybody with a conscience. That's that's what you would typically well, want to do. I, what I'm saying is, Christ spent time among lepers uh-huh. in the same way. I am in no way comparing Christ to Che Guevara. Please, please do not think that I am. Yeah. Just simply mentioning something that is similar between the two. But he does have people that view him as a Christ-like figure, and and this could very well be one of the reasons why they they see it that way. Is he literally helped people with leprosy? He saw the inequality that people were suffering, and he tried to do something about it. So I think that's where we start seeing the, the myth and the legends of, of Shea. That is totally commendable. Mm-hmm. However, I don't know if it erases the rest of what he did. <laughs> right, right. Of his time in the camp, Shea wrote, The psychological lift it gives to these poor people, treating them as normal human beings instead of animals, as they are used to, is incalculable. This experience in the leper camp had a profound effect on the two, but each in their own way. So this is where I was talking about earlier where because of their training and their beliefs, Shay could have gone one of two directions for the most part, and this is a prime example of what could have happened. So Granado would actually end up staying in Peru after their trip to continue his treatment of leprosy patients. So he took his medical degree and said, this is my passion in life. I'm going to help these individuals. Is he on a t-shirt? He, I, I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe on a few uh, photos of him and Shay on their trip. <laughs> but Shay left with a different state of mind. His view from here on out was the only way for the people of South America to have equality and rights and finances was through outright revolution. After this trip, Shea would finish his degree in medicine, but then dedicate his life to starting revolutions across the world. His goal was to promote socialism and economic equality through revolting and revolution. Okay. So... 
this is where <clears throat> just this this whole overall section you get to see Shay's point of view, and this is the one in my viewpoint is the one redeeming quality about him is he truly saw what was wrong with people and he wanted to make a difference was it did he go about it the right way i personally don't think so but it wasn't out of selfishness that he did what he did initially did that evolve over time probably so um, we are now going to kind of go into the opposite of what that redeeming quality was. So we, we see why people may idolize him. I see why people may want to follow in his path and have the posters on the wall because he wanted to fight for equality. But when he actually got the chance to fight in these revolutions and to take over what he deemed as oppressive governments, there was a lot of things that Shea did that are things that you would look down upon or are outright horrendous and evil. Okay. So the first thing is Shea killed people that were anything against the, his revolution. Yes. So many people today view Shea as the fighter of the people. Okay. That's why he they, was standing up for the people who didn't have a voice. Exactly. He was the voice of the voiceless trying to take down capitalist greed through peace. However, according to eyewitness accounts, Shay would kill at will anyone who stood against his views. So during his time as leader of the La Cabana, not the Coco Cabana, prison, Shay admittedly would kill prisoners regardless of whether they were innocent or guilty. The official Cuban news even reported him saying the following in 1962. In times of excessive tension, we cannot proceed weakly. At the Sierra Mastro, we executed many people by firing squad without knowing if they were fully guilty. At times, the revolution cannot stop to conduct much investigation. It has the obligation to triumph. So he's saying no trial, no jury, straight to execution. Right. Because if there's any glimmer of a doubt that this one person could stop the revolution or change people's minds, it's not worth them living. Tell me the equality in that. Oh, there is none. No, there's not. One officer even explained that he was told to make documents stating that prisoners were guilty even before the prisoner or the papers were presented to the ministry. Shea's guidelines to his troops were that they were to act with conviction and to treat all prisoners as murderers. He made them believe that the revolution would not live on if these people were left alive. During his time in charge, it is believed that possibly thousands of people were killed at his request. It is also documented that he himself would kill prisoners. In a more poetic entry in his diary, he wrote, I see it printed in the night sky that I, howling like one possessed, will assault the barricades or the trenches will take my blood-stained weapon and consume with fury, slaughter any enemy who falls into my hands. Where's the peace in that? There is zero peace. No, there, there really is not. In another diary entry, he wrote about the execution of a Cuban peasant that leaked information. He gasped for a little while and was dead. To execute a human being is sometimes ugly, but also exemplary. 
My gosh. So fighter of the people taking a peasant. So the people that you're fighting for. But that's the whole thing. That's not who he's fighting for. He's fighting for his ideals. Right. He doesn't give a crap if the person he says he's fighting for is against him. Right. That person's just wrong. Boom. Now they're not wrong anymore. They're dead. Right. That's exactly how socialism works. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't say all socialism is that way. But in the way that he executed... Not a pun, but the way that he executed socialism, yes. And this is this is totalitarianism. My way or the highway. So the next thing I want to talk about is Shea was actually in charge of imprisoning gay people. So images of Shea have been known to pop up in the LGBTQ plus community as a sign of freedom and revolting against those who oppress the gay community. Gay Pride is an event that we see all across the U.S., all across the world. And most of their viewpoints are that the government, especially in areas where gay marriage is not legal, is oppressing them. So let's use Shay as a symbol of freedom, as somebody who's going to fight the oppression and to fight back. If you look at it from that viewpoint, I guess it makes sense. However, Shay himself oppressed the gay community. Not only oppressed... Downright murdered. Yep. yep. During the early 1960s, Shea was part of the incarceration of gay people and helped set up and lead multiple forced labor camps. During this time, military service was mandatory in Cuba. However, the Cuban government deemed gay men and men with AIDS as unfit to serve. So these individuals, instead of you know sending them into the military because they're not fit to do so, would be forced into labor camps and would perform work for Castro and his regime. So, okay, you're not going to help us in fighting anything, so let's just put you to work and work you to the bone. So you're not good enough to be a human being. You're not good enough to serve in the military, but you're good enough to labor for us. Right. Well, that's awful nice of them. Doesn't that sound a little bit like exploitation? Sounds a little bit like <laughs> Nazi Germany to me. <laughs> yeah. So these individuals, like I said, were forced into labor camps, and many of the policies that put these people into the camps actually originated from Shea himself. So he was the one that rounded these people up. He was the one that wrote the policies that said, hey, you're, you're coming to work for us, and we're going to use you for the betterment of, of Cuba. The conditions in these camps were horrendous. One novelist and poet, Ronaldo Arenas, who published work outside of Cuba without the government's consent, who was thrown into one of these camps because of that, he claims that he was tortured, accused of pederasty, or basically pedophilia, having sexual relations with a, a minor, which would, and not specifically just a minor, but a, a male minor, so a little boy. Gotcha, okay. And against his will was forced to work on a sugar plantation. The persecution he endured led him to attempt suicide. Luckily, he failed and eventually actually escaped the country. This is ridiculous. You're using his image as this freedom, freedom fighter, but he doesn't stand for anything that you actually support. Dude, you are trying so hard not to just blow up <laughs> into the mic right now. I... Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm listening. Okay. And try not to derail the podcast. <laughs> oh, I knew this was going to be an interesting podcast. <laughs> uh, Shay was also a racist. What? 
Which is so weird because he's talking about how he wanted indigenous people to have freedom. Obviously, indigenous people are probably going to be a little bit different than he is. So, again, though, if we look at racist people, a lot of racist people aren't blatantly racist. You can spot the people that are blatantly racist. Right. But a lot of people are racist and you can't see it because they say one thing and then act totally different way. So in his little diary, yeah, he may say, we should free all the people and this is wrong. But in the same line, he's saying, that guy's not as good as I am. I'm far better than that person. Mm -hmm. The same way that how many people have we covered believe the exact same thing. They say one thing, but do another. Completely agree. It's just the signature of a racist. (laughs) It really is. So... Guevara made many racist claims throughout his life. However, many people will go back and forth on whether or not he was racist. The reason being is, although he did make these comments, and there are statistics showing that he favored non-blacks, he did eventually move to the Congo to attempt a revolution, which are all Africans, obviously, and black. So the argument is, Oh, well, he was racist when he was younger, but the older that he got. And hey, you know, people change. I won't hold that against you. If that's something that's true, that hey, you know, this person was racist and they grew and I'm fine. That, that's, you know, perfect. I'm, I, I hope he ended his life not being a racist. <laughs> one, let's hope that's the one, one thing he brought in. <laughs> uh, so let's, let's first take a look at a few of his diary entries, you know, specifically focused on black people. One entry describes what he thought of blacks that were living in Caracas, Venezuela. The magnificent examples of the African race who have maintained their racial purity thanks to their lack of affinity with bathing. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yep. (laughs) So didn't like the people because they uh, weren't cleanly. Another entry describes the differences between African and Europeans. The black is the black is indolent and a dreamer, spending his meager wage on frivolity or drink. The European has a tradition of work and saving. And this is coming from an Argentinian? Yes. Not some European guy. Right. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you gotta look at it. I mean Argentinians at least probably his background probably did a little bit come from Spain. Okay. But still, he is a native Argentinian. However, his actions may have even spoke louder than his words. During his time leading prisons, the individuals executed were disproportionately black and mulatto. Maybe he did have those racist views beforehand, but we're talking Cuba. This is when he is not elderly, but he's a grown man. He's making what, his late decisions. 50s, early 60s? Around, maybe not even that old, but... No, 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 uh, 1950s. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, we're talking 50s and 60s. More around the 60s. So this is after he left Africa? No, this was before he went to Africa. So when was he in Af- Africa? He was in Africa in 65. Okay. So right. early 60s. Once again, supposed to be a freedom fighter. Clearly not. <laughs> when it came to people outside of his race. Once again, I don't get it. Another thing is Shea was against freedom of the press. What? You mean you can't write things that are against my views? When Shea came to power in Cuba, he told leftist journalist Jose Pardo Ledal, we must eliminate all newspapers. We cannot make a revolution with free press. 
Newspapers are instruments of the oligarchy. Shea would eventually get his way once the Castro regime came to power. All news in Cuba came via the government newspaper. That's where you want your information coming from. Can't blame them for that. I trust the government wholeheartedly, don't you? Of course. Absolutely. I get all of my information directly from the government. Well, yeah. And what they say goes. 100%. We don't need a First Amendment. No. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just interesting because wouldn't you want other people's views to be... If you're truly trying to eliminate oppression, wouldn't that be one of the first things that you would want people to do is to freely speak their mind? In theory. In theory, you would. Right. But in act, no, because they're not freeing anybody. They're oppressing an entire nation. So, yeah, you wouldn't want the press to have any freedom whatsoever because then they're going to tell what's actually going on to the rest of the world. Right. So it totally makes sense that a socialist... I don't even know what you'd call them, citizen, socialist individual, would want the press to be shut down and secluded and only come from what he says. Mm -hmm. Because then you can drive the narrative. Then you can, you have the, you have the power to show the, the rest of the world what's going on in the nation that you control. And the fact that he wanted he wanted the entire world, and specifically South America, to follow his lead. So if people outside think everything's hunky-dory, then they're more likely to adopt his Absolutely, his yeah. yeah. Huh, that makes sense. Uh, the last the last major thing that we're going to talk about, Shay, before we go into an uh, open discussion, which might get a little bit crazy. Uh, Shay's revolutions, for the most part, failed. What? <laughs> So Cuba, although the revolution was successful, if you look at the idea that, yes, they took over and the revolt actually came to a conclusion and they won, the economy quickly collapsed. We're talking, so they took over in 19, around 1959. By 1965, their, their economy was absolutely decimated. And we're talking... All I hear about when I think of Cuba and think about the history is people defecting and doing anything it took to come to the United States. Absolutely. And that's why you hear these horror stories about people coming here in anything they can. I think it's about 100 miles or so. These people are willing to risk their life and bet on a raft that they made Mm -hmm. across the ocean to get out of Cuba. Right. There was one time, I, I'm sorry if we're getting off topic. Oh, you're totally fine. There was, there was one point where there were so many eyes on Cuba that Castro, who we're not talking about, but he was in power at the time, said, oh, Cubans are free to come and go as they please. And so he said, yeah, anybody that wants to leave can leave at this very specific time. And there were literally hundreds of thousands of Cubans who, at the drop of a hat, said, we're leaving. We don't care where we end up. Mm-hmm. U.S. has taken us, we'll go there. Because that was the very short amount of time that he allowed them to leave. Right. Because otherwise they weren't allowed to leave. No, they weren't. If they wanted to leave, they got put in camps and forced to work on these sugarcane farms where they didn't want to work. Right. And even just getting out for like, you couldn't even, a lot of times you couldn't go on vacations or anything. Well, where are you going to go? You're not allowed to leave. Right. So you leave Cuba to go to Cuba. Like... It's, it, it's a tiny place. It's not like, oh, I'm leaving Arizona, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go to Tennessee. It's not that. It's not, oh, I'm leaving Arizona to go to California for a day. Yeah. No, you're leaving Cuba to go to Cuba. 
Right. There's no leaving. And this was happening 60 years ago, but this didn't end till when did Castro die? Within the last decade. I want to say it was probably like 2000, what, 12? It was during the Obama administration. I never finished writing this. <laughs> so I got so pissed off I quit writing it. But anyways, I mean, it, it's something that continued to happen. So not only did his revolution fail in Cuba, they went into an economical crapper. Uh, it lasted well beyond the life of Shea. Uh, in 1965, after the collapse of the economy, he resigned his post, like we said earlier, and he traveled to the Congo where he tried to help rebels overthrow their government. So... Great, another opportunity for me to try to push my viewpoint. He quickly realized, though, in what he believed, he was working with warlords, drunks, narcissists, and opportunists. So he was working with people just like him. <laughs> kind of. Uh, after attempting to continue and trying to work things out, trying to push his agenda, he, he ended up becoming ill, like he did quite a bit, and... Castro begged him to reconsider and come back. So he did eventually come back to, to Cuba. And then finally, in 1967, he tried one last time to start a revolution. He went to Bolivia to start another revolution, but he was shortly captured by the Bolivian government and put to death. Although he had great potential, the execution of his plans were not successful, whether that was in a failed in failed revolutions or whether that was his oppression towards the people that he was trying to free it just didn't work out and what i want to what i want to know and and i have kind of gotten your thoughts already but i'm just gonna open this up what are your thoughts on on shay <sighs> i will try to be as politically correct as i can be okay i think my thoughts are pretty blatantly obvious mm -hmm. um I think socialism is a cancer on society. But that said, I think everybody has some redeeming qualities about them. You know, everybody has some. Yeah. I think that as a younger individual, as a younger man, he had wonderful ideas about helping people. And I think he had the means to do so. But he chose a different path. And I think that's about the best thing that I can say about it. <laughs> See, when you, the funny thing, not the funny thing, but the thing that you said there that sticks out to me is socialism or Marxism being a cancer to, to society. Now, I am going to be a little bit different than what you, you think. When I see socialism and communism on paper, I think it is a great idea on paper. And I know there's going to be people out there that think I'm crazy. But literally, socialism, when it comes down to it, and communism, it's basically trying to get everybody an equal playing field, taking the, the gross of everything, and being able to provide for everybody. Which, if you look at it on paper, sounds Brilliant. It's a utopian idea. It really is a utopian idea. It, it cannot be done. And look at the history of man. It cannot sustain itself. Right. Socialism only works until you run out of other people's money. Once you run out of, uh, uh, then it's over with. Because, yeah, it's great. Hey, we're all equal. Yes, we are. 
But then one person gets a little bit of greed and it grows and grows and grows and grows. And the way that it keeps growing is they keep murdering people right. and they keep oppressing people. See, I think the key word there is the greed portion. Because I don't think if, if everybody were to equal, equally contribute to society, socialism and communism would work. I still Number disagree. one, people don't equally put in the same amount of effort. Of course not. And we see this in the workplace. I can guarantee you out there, there is somebody in your job, in your place of work, that you look and go, how the hell do they work here still? I put in a thousand times more work than they do, and they're getting paid as much as I do. So number one, that's why socialism and communism won't work. Number two is even if everybody was putting the exact same effort in, if one or two people take advantage of the system and run off of greed, this, what we saw happen to Shea and Castro, is what is the result. So there's another aspect of socialism, though, that a lot of people fail to look at. The racist aspects of it. Okay, go a little bit deeper in that. Look at any socialist government in the history of man. Have any of them not targeted a certain race or class of people? True, but that's more of the totalitarianism of it. So does that not go hand in hand with socialism, though? Not true socialism. What is true socialism? Something that's never worked in the world. Right. So is there such thing as true socialism without total totalitarianism? Okay. I'm asking. I'm not... I think it's a byproduct. It's because it's because of the human element. But that's like saying blood is a byproduct of evil. You don't see blood until you shoot somebody. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and this is where and no, I completely understand where you're coming from. I just think that it, it it's not a it's not socialism that's doing it. It's the human factor of social. I personally think socialism will never work. It will work for us. There are two ways that it'll work. Number one, it'll work for a short period of time. Which is what it's shown to happen with. Yes. Yeah. A year, maybe two. Number two, a very, very small group of people. Whether that's some sort of colony, some sort of tribe. A commune. A commune. If, if handled correctly. But we've, we've talked about this too. A lot of those, somebody takes over. Yeah, and they end up exploiting everyone around them. Right. So, I love capitalism for one reason. The harder I work, the more money I make. Right. If I want to go out and get a second job to make more money, I am free to do so. Mm -hmm. If I want to quit working at this place because I disagree with the way my boss treats me, I have the ability to do so. Right. In a socialist society, you don't. In a social, socialist society, you're given your place, and that's where you're at. Mm -hmm. Deal with it. Right. There's no better. The only way you can go is worse. Mm -hmm. And I loathe that. <laughs> I like the American ideal that you can come from nothing and become something. Right. With socialism, you can come from nothing and stay nothing at best. Yeah. At worst, you get murdered. Well, there's no incentive. What's going to make you become a doctor? Not saying, Absolutely nothing. Not saying that money is the only reason to become something. You could, you become, and in this case, like Granado, he became a doctor to help the poor. 
and to help people with leprosy. There are people out there that they have hearts of gold, and that's true. Okay, amazing person. But there altruistic. are people, and, and, and I don't judge people that do this. They want to be a doctor because they, they're going to be rich. Hey, and good for And them. That's, that's fantastic. As, I, that's awesome. As long as they do their job right, mm-hmm. I don't care what you do. And you make money good for you. Right. Right. Now, here's the question, though. Was Shay ever a good man? I think at one point, yeah. Okay. Again, when he was out there with those lepers, mm-hmm. I think that is being a good person. He is giving of himself. I think that's awesome. Good for him. He should have stayed there. Mm-hmm. He should have done what his buddy did. Right. He should have continued on living his life, helping other people, living a selfless life. Right. The way I think most people should. Or you know what? He should have left there, came to America, started the, I don't know, uh, an ice cream store, <laughs> and just became a billionaire. Right. You know. So I see Shay as, I think if his legacy were to have stopped there before he started revolutions, we would I would give 100% support to people wearing his image, people using his image, um, because his ideas at the root of it were pure. At the root of it. It's Roots the are way, deep. <laughs> right. When he actually went through it, I think part of it was, number one, he was so passionate about what he wanted that he did things that were outside of what he originally felt was right. Number two, I think it was the people he associated himself with. I think the moment that he associated himself with the Castros, that was it. Yeah, sign in blood right there. It was no longer, it was no longer about making the world a better place. It was all about forcing power. And unfortunately, that's what Shea turned into. Was he was no longer this humanitarian. He was part of a regime. Probably one of the, in history, one of the most oppressive regimes ever. Yeah. Speaking of Fidel and their ties, Mm -hmm. did he ever try to help him once he was in Bolivia? I wonder how strong that bond was. Yeah, I'm not sure. I didn't go that deep into it. Because you would think the leader of a nation mm-hmm. would be able to have a little bit of pull. Right. You know, to help keep his best friend from being murdered. The one thing that I kind of got the impression of was at that point, Shay had kind of not necessarily cut ties. But he had kind of resigned from his duties. So I don't think they were as close as they were in the past. Gotcha. And Shay was trying to look for another opportunity. I think Shay, towards the end, started to see the errors of his ways a little bit. But he then continued to do what he was doing, which was a little bit weird. What makes you say that? I think he saw the failure that Cuba was and was like, dude, I got to get out and try it again. Okay, so so he saw Cuban as a Cuban Cuba as a failed mission. Yes, he's moving on to the next one to see if it'll work. Right, and that's okay. why I think that's I truly think that's why he left. But at that point, he, it was in, in redeemable. And he, that's all he knew was rebel rebellion, and so he tried to do the same. It's the whole insanity complex. You do the same thing over and over again, trying to expect a different result, and clearly he did never got a different result. Yeah. But. 
This was a really interesting research period for me. I've never been... I mean, how many have we done? This is like our 11th episode, 10th or 11th episode. I've never been this angry while researching somebody. <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't help the fact that I'm researching him and watching the election at the same time. Yeah. Dude, last night I was literally in bed just like shaking from how angry I was with research, how just pissed off I was about the election just as a whole. There's so much crap going on between the different candidates, what each are saying and the whole process and man, it was it was this was not the right person to do in the climate and the, t- the time we're at. But at the same time, it opened up my eyes to the information that people get today is so skewed and people don't research it enough. And that's 100% what it is. People have no idea what they're standing up for. Right. I think those, and especially the most exposure that I got to Shay in my life was in college. And I just don't think that those individuals understood what they were putting in, in their in their dorm rooms. It was, this man is a freedom fighter. This man stood up for oppression. He was a man for the people. And if that's all I knew about Shea, I would get behind it. Yeah, well, Hitler was a decorated uh, soldier in World War One. Mm-hmm. Hitler was also an animal lover that passed laws to keep animals protected. Yeah. If that's all you knew about him, he sounds like a great guy. Right. It's the same thing, but you don't see people walking around with Hitler on their shirts. Right. No decent person, at least. No. Because we know him. Mm-hmm. History knows him as an evil, evil person. Right. Why is Shay not in the same boat? Number one, he wasn't the leader. Oh, that's true, yeah. He was the background. And and so I think there is... He, he kind of can hide behind Castro as the evil person. Number two is he was a martyr. A martyr, yeah. In people's eyes. And so he died for the cause. And I think that's the big one right there. And I think that's what propels him to this Messiah-like status in the eyes of a lot of people. So, very interesting episode. I think people are going to be very polarized by this episode. They're either going to love it or hate it. So, this was definitely a different episode and this is an episode that Nick and I talked about. Well, not this specific, but we, we've talked about how humanizing history has been a show about taking famous people, people we know about, and kind of digging into their lives a little bit and finding tidbits that we usually don't know about, but for the most part, finding redeeming qualities. The occasional off-putting thing, but for the most part, well, redeeming. Of course. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt, for example, since he's the most recent one we've done, did a lot of good things. But kind of a racist jerk. Right. You know. But we also talked about doing a hated history Mm -hmm. episode. Or two. Maybe three. Depending on if you guys like them or not. Right. Where we pick somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of redeeming qualities. But still had a fascinating life. Yeah. That we would love to bring to you guys. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say this is necessarily one of them. But it's a taste of it. It absolutely can be a taste of it. And I honestly, when I was writing this, did not expect it to go in this sort of direction. It was more of, hey, I I truly wanted to learn more about this guy that I see everywhere. And it just turns out that he is an awful person. And I will say, um, it's been years since either one of us has been in college. Mm -hmm. Um, When is the last time you saw a Che Guevara shirt 
or poster. It kind of seems like like it's dropped off a little bit, a lot. I don't know. I I can't, like, pinpoint an exact moment. But I I swear I've even seen, like, murals of him even in, like, Phoenix. Really? Yeah. So maybe it's just where I live, the pocket of the valley I live in. I don't see that. Yeah. I feel like I've seen his artwork and things around. And especially, I mean, especially since we're now living in a climate where socialism is once again an option. I think we're going to start seeing it more. Well. Do I understand it? No. But. You know what? If that's something you believe in, please just go do research and find out what it is you actually believe. And heck, if, if, if you support him, then by all means, you know, wear his shirt. I don't necessarily, I, I do not support what he did. But, yeah, so that's, that's Che Guevara. And it was, it was a very interesting episode, but I'm excited to do more of these kind of humanizing history, bad history types of people. I'm thinking maybe once every few months doing somebody like this. So Hatronizing history. Hatronizing history. <laughs> hey, we need to come up with a, uh, with a funny uh, intro for that. We're going to have to do something. Hey, if you want to be a part of hatronizing history, <laughs> if you want your intro to be you know, making fun of it, please send it in. We'd love to use it. Yeah, or if you have any iterations that you want to... I give you full permission to tweak our intro for these hatred episodes absolutely yeah make it fun make it funny speaking of involvement how can people connect with the show cliff people can connect with us on facebook they can connect with us on reddit we actually have finally had someone uh, get in touch with us on reddit yes and i ended up having a short conversation with them so yeah get on on reddit with us and talk to us get on facebook hit us on twitter you can find us on instagram we post there once a week and you can also email us. So all the hate mail, <laughs> everything from this episode, send it in. If you disagree with me, which I'm sure there are people who do, email me at humanizinghistory at gmail.com. Watch it. This will be like the last episode we ever do. We're going to get so much hate. <laughs> you know what? If I get hate for this episode for the things I said, I am totally <laughs> fine with that. I will be that person that will be the hated anti-socialist. Cliff Boone, the anti-socialist. Email me. Oh, yeah. But today was an interesting episode. I appreciate everybody uh, sitting along for the ride. I hope it's something that opened up your eyes and you learned a little bit more about history. But uh, until next time, guys, I hope you guys have a great week and and we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. And if you do want to put anybody on a shirt, put William Wallace on a shirt instead. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, love each other. Regardless of political affiliation, regardless of what's going on, love each other. We'll get through it. Remember your history. Peace out. 